0: You're listening to Win the Day with James Whitaker. What we do in life echoes in eternity. Broadcasting from Los Angeles, California. This is the number one podcast to help you win the day every day. Here's your host, James Whitaker. Let's go. Welcome back to Win the Day. The quote for this episode comes from Winston Churchill and says, success is the ability to go from failure to failure without losing your enthusiasm. And the person we've got today certainly epitomizes that sentiment. In the pursuit of giving you everything you need to take ownership of your life, I try to give you a diverse mix of guests, as you've seen in the last few episodes. But I've never interviewed someone like who we've got today, Cos Marte. Kos's mother moved to the US from the Dominican Republic when she was six months pregnant with Cos. Settling in the Lower East Side of New York City, it was a brutal time, with skyrocketing crime statistics that made headlines around the world. At 11 years old, Cost began using drugs. Just two years later, at the age of 13, he was selling crack on the streets as a way to make ends meet. With the complete lack of positive role models and an environment riddled with crime, there were very little legitimate avenues available to him. Despite seeing extreme acts of violence and people killed, Koss was able to survive. Eventually, six years later, at 19 years old, he was at the helm of one of the largest drug delivery services in New York City. Through a team of couriers, dispatchers, and street soldiers, Koss distributed vast quantities of cocaine and marijuana to all segments of society, from public housing residents to cops, judges, and doctors, but especially Wall Street executives who had the salaries to match the insatiable appetite for his product. At its peak, the business was earning more than $5 million a year. Koss's drug business was so successful that he needed eight mobile phones just to keep in touch with his customers. Eventually, the law caught up with him, and 23-year-old Koss was sentenced to prison and forced to turn over all proceeds from his criminal enterprise. It was the latest in a string of arrests that had seen him incarcerated 10 times since he first began dealing drugs as a 13-year-old. Giving up the lifestyle was tough, but since Koss had become a father for the first time, the feelings of abandonment from his baby son, who he had to watch grow up from behind bars, was the worst. While in prison, Koss was told that his cholesterol levels were through the roof and he would die if he didn't start taking care of his health. Six months later, through a rigorous fitness regime from the confines of his cell, Koss lost 70 pounds and helped dozens of other inmates to do the same. His own transformation had reignited a flame of ambition, and when released, he launched ConBody, a fitness program that would help get people in the best shape of their life, while offering employment prospects for people who had just left prison and couldn't find work anywhere else. Since then, through his studios and online programs, Coss has trained more than 50,000 people from around the world. He's an author, a TEDx speaker, and recently launched a crowdfund for a nonprofit that helps equip formerly incarcerated people with the skills to succeed in the digital world so they don't need to return to a life of crime. This is a different and more somber style of interview than I've done before. And while we cover many of the raw aspects of Costa's past, None of it it is used to glorify the life he used to lead. It's a wonderful tale of redemption and shows how the right accountability and focus can brighten even the darkest situation. Before we begin, I just wanted to include one final note. While Koss is very open about his past to help make others uh, to help others make better decisions, so they don't have to learn the hard way like he did, I asked Koss prior to the recording to avoid mentioning anyone or anything from his past life that could jeopardise his or his family's safety. All right, let's get into it. Koss Marte, great to see you, my friend. Thanks for being on the Win the Day Show.
1: No, thank you so much, James, for the opportunity.
0: Well, to kick things off, take us into the Lower East Side of New York City during that period, the nineteen eighties, and what it was like as a thirteen year old kid selling crack on the streets.
1: It was it was a crazy time. I remember just seeing like uh, just drug lines, you know, down the block, and I, I remember seeing um, just so it was just it, it was a normal thing to see and and grow up to be a part of that you thought it was it was some sort of job and. Uh, and uh, the community was like a part of it. You know, it was like, yo, the cops are coming and somebody will w- blow a whistle down the block and be like, hey, yo, and, and uh, warn people and people, some people would scatter. Um, and, and sometimes the cops would just see stuff and just, you know, turn a blind eye because uh, it was just so much craziness. You know, it was, I don't know, it was just insane. It was insane to see like buckets coming out off the roof, you know, with drugs, and people put their money in the bucket, and then it'll be rang back up, and then just going back and forth, and lines just going crazy. It was just crazy. And
0: there were that was obviously a notoriously uh, crime-ridden part of New York City. It made headlines around the world. Um, right. Was that were there areas of the city where the police just refused to go into?
1: Uh, I mean, you would see the police, but you would not see them doing anything. Um, you know, it was just, it was just so much going on that it became normalized that they would walk by, you know, prostitutes and, you know, just say hi to them and just keep it moving. You know, like it was, uh, I felt like they just couldn't control what was happening and they were pro- part of the problem as well. Like they were just doing corrupt stuff. You know, they would take money under the door or like robbing. You know, I've been robbed by cops before where they take my money and they just don't report it. Wow, that's crazy.
0: And how, how did the drug game work as a street-level dealer? Did everyone have their own? Is it like you see in the movies where everyone's got their own corner and their, their own turf that other other crews know that they're not supposed to be near unless they want to try and take it over?
1: Yeah, I mean, every corner was, was owned by somebody. It was not, it was not like a... Uh, you know somebody from one corner comes to the next corner and they get shot. you know it was nothing like that, but if you sold drugs on that block, you know you would have a problem. I remember having a fight with you know somebody that sold block and my uh, sold drugs in my mom's block and I sold drugs two blocks away um, and I, I remember I, I saw like a common customer and I was walking out of the building and and I just served them and uh, somebody told him that I was doing this. And, uh, and we got into a fight, you know, and he pulled out a knife and started chasing me. And it was, it, it was just like, like things that you would never imagine happen, but it was happening. And there was, there was no cameras around. <laughs> so, you know, like nowadays, it, like people are worried about the cameras watching them. There was no cell phones with cameras. You know, it was, you know everybody had a beeper. Um, and that, that was it.
0: Yeah, it was easy, easy to get away with with things back then, with before all the all the surveillance.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs>
0: what about? So you had these these crazy times that, that were on the street. There must have been some crazy things. Are, are there other incidents, or maybe one incident in particular, like the one that you mentioned, that stood out as something particularly brutal that people who haven't lived that life might not have any idea about?
1: Yeah, no, I had a I had a friend slash neighbor get um, shot. You know. And got killed. Uh, he got shot three times in the head. You know, right in. And I was down the block. Um, I was. Set, I was just standing on the corner, and the, the shots like rang off, and and uh, and it was over a cell phone. You know, it was and over a girl on a cell phone. It was. It was just crazy to see how things could like escalate for something so minuscule. You know, like, thinking about it now, you know, it's just, like, people will, would fight over, you know, stepping on somebody's Jordans. And, like, you, you you step on my Jordans, like, it's an automatic fight. Like, you know, so it was uh, uh, things of that nature. I mean, I've I seen a lot of crazy stuff. I, I, don't, know, I don't even know where. where there's just so many stories that I could get into, um, you know, especially with me and my, my business partner from back in the day. We just... I I remember we uh, we went to Central Park, and uh, there was like a horse and carriage there, and and we were like walking around with our mink uh, mink, you know, colts, and we were joking around with pimp like pimp sticks and stuff like that, and and we just had so much money that we were like, yo, let's let's uh, let's try to bargain with one of these horse and carriages and take them back to our neighborhood so we could sell drugs right on the corner with the horse and carriage. Like we were sitting on a fucking, like a, like a pedestal. And uh, and there was a few, because they're not allowed to go under like 42nd Street or something. Like, there's just a borderline. And so we convinced this lady. We gave her like $5,000 to like take us to the block. And the kids uh, in the neighborhood started feeding them like apples and Uh, the the, the horses apples and carrots and we gave everybody money and and we're like literally going down like fifth avenue like having crackheads you know meet us in a horse and carriage uh, and we're just selling drugs out of a horse and carriage we actually even went to like a mcdonald's drive it uh, drive through and like (laughs) (laughs) bought like mcdonald's and, and, and they were like the window I like the window of the McDonald's. it was like, what the, like, it was just, it was crazy. It was just, we thought wow. we were legal. We thought we were legal, but we got away with stuff like that, which was crazy.
0: How, yeah. how would people know that you were the the dealer? How would how would people know where to go to, especially if you're mobile, if you're on a, a horse and carriage, or did people recognize you at that point? We, at,
1: at that point, I was, I had a delivery service. And so people would, you know, I, I was getting calls from all over the city and and people wanted Drugs. So while we're like riding down the avenue, we're like, hey, meet us at, you know, we're, we're about to hit the corner of 14th and 5th, you know, jump on the horse and carriage and then jump off. You know, it was, and then we're like hitting like to Houston Street, like we're on Houston and Broadway, you know, we're here, where, yeah, meet us on this corner. It was just like something that you, I don't know, out of a movie that you really can't
0: describe. Yeah, it makes it. It should make for a good movie at some stage in the future. So, was there was there no concern or regard about any of those people wanting to buy drugs could possibly be undercover cops, or was it just not even really on their radar? The the big war of drugs was did that sort of come later in different parts of the city with the big cleanup against all of crime?
1: Yeah, I mean Giuliani was uh, a mayor that just was like against crime. I remember, you know, as a kid, just being stopped by cops constantly. Um, for not doing anything, you know, just going to the store and being searched. You know, I've probably been stopped by cops on stop and frisk about probably over 200 times. um, Just because they knew I was up to no good, you know, and, and but they would, you know, there was sometimes I was not up to, I was just going to the store. You know, I was just doing, going down the block and just minding my own business and or going home and I'm just getting stopped you know, because I fit the description or, you know, somebody said Suppose The whole thing was like, somebody said that you had a gun on you. And I'm like, I I really never carry guns at that time. Um, But yeah, I mean, it was, it was crazy. It was crazy.
0: Wow. That's insane. Well, eventually you make it from street dealer to head of a crew making, you know, more than $5 million a year. How did that transition happen?
1: So we basically changed the way we sold drugs. Uh, I had... I remember making making like little pieces of paper and writing my number on it and like giving that out to people. You know that and and the neighborhood started getting gentrified in the early two thousands. Um, like after nine eleven, uh, I remember land landowners here. Nobody wanted to live in the Lower East Side, and and I and I remember landowners offering people to move out like twenty thousand dollars, and they, then they were. Fixing up their apartments and renting them out for like three thousand um, dollars, and and, that, and that's still happening today, um, which is crazy. But and it, and so justification happened quickly, and you know, white little hipsters started moving in, and and they had a lot of money, and uh, and I remember, you know, increasing my price from you know selling twenty dollar bags to fifty dollars bags, and then a hundred dollar grams, and and it just kept escalating like that and and uh i was not scared of cops because i so how i basically marketed and found out that that person was not a cop was just that i hung out with that person i, I like met these individuals in bars and and had smoke like smoked a blunt with them you know and then I'll, I'll give them my card with a little bit of coke sample on it and then they just you know would, would call me there and that and that's how it expanded. But uh, I did get caught through through phones. Um, but that was a that was a, that's a longer story. Yeah, I'm looking forward to
0: getting into getting into that one. So you, you have this whole business at that point. You've got dozens of people on your payroll. You've got drivers, couriers, people working all the different phones and things you had. What about the product side? Where did that come from? What could you sell it for? And who were you selling it to?
1: I'm not gonna. Tell you where the product came from, but you know, everything is derived from, you know, uh, (laughs) South America, (laughs) Colombia, Mexico, probably. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so it it was, it was being delivered directly. Um, and I, I guess, you know, things were getting by through the mail and there was people getting on planes and, you know, bringing stuff in and, and that's how, that's how things operated. Um, so, I would buy like a kilo for about 20 grand and make $100,000 off of it. And we'd move a kilo in a, in a week, you know? And so, that's, that's how we did it.
0: And are these, because you were dealing with some Wall Street types as well, weren't you? Like a lot of these corporate clients and things, were they telling you that there's certain other drugs and things that they wanted? Or were there other customers who were telling you, hey, I need, you know, a different type of drug that you then added to your, your portfolio?
1: Uh, the only thing that we added to our portfolio was uh, weed. Uh, funny you say portfolio, but yeah, no, we didn't really have like that many categories. I, I mean, I, I had messed around with like hashish and like e-pills and, and acid and all that stuff um, when I was younger and like I was just on heroin. Um, but once we started the, the deliveries service, we just straight focused on on coke and weed.
0: And who were the who were the best customers to have?
1: Yeah, I mean those Wall Street people, those those kids that had a lot of money that moved into the city and was you know paying three grand for a two hundred square foot studio. You know, like it was just it was crazy to see that. You know, I, I've never seen these people just spend so much money furiously, and there was there was actually a lot of Australians that were moving in, and I remember they. Uh, you know, Australians were coming and, and they were paying like what 150 dollars a gram in, in Australia and for coke. And then when they came to the city and we told them 100 gram, 100 you know dollars a gram, they were like, "Wow, can I get like 20?" You know, and it was just like, "Oh shit!" You know, this person going all out. And so we had these these people that were coming from and moving into New York City, and it and that was a. Our, our, best customers you know these people that had professional jobs you know coders finance people uh and they all partied and the word got out there even doctors i've sold to lawyers judges cops uh it's just crazy Hmm. interesting times isn't it well what about
0: at the absolute peak of your powers you're bringing in five million dollars a year with the business i think it was more than two million dollars in profit wasn't it what was what was life like at that point? Can you talk us through, like, yeah, like what experiences were you having? Were you happy at that time? Were you wanting more?
1: I I was always always wanting more, and I I just I was pretty greedy. Um, I didn't care about. I had a cold heart. I just didn't really care who who was hurt by my drugs. I just wanted the money, and I wanted to keep you know growing. Um, it was, it was crazy. I, I spent money frivolously feverish, and like, just didn't really care, you know, how, you know, you know, what, what was going on. I know the money was just going to keep going and coming. And, uh, it was fun. I mean, I, I, I was not, I was not sad at that, at those times, you know, um, you know, it was, uh, a lot of, crazy partying and, and, you know, messing around in the streets. And that was just the mentality that I had. It was just like, you know, I didn't care who I'd had to step over or hurt, you know, to get that money. Mm. So it was living for the present, not trying to
0: set yourself up for the future. Is that is that why the idea of quitting while you were ahead never entered your mind? Or maybe it did enter your mind.
1: It did. I mean, I, I definitely wanted to do some, get into some type of real estate. I, I try to get... Uh, I tried to get like my real estate uh, broker license uh, when I was younger, and uh, but I had a I had a record, and so I couldn't get it, and so that that prevented me from entering that that business. But I was looking into buying like foreclosed houses and and buying stuff, and and I got caught up with my friend. We we spent a lot of money, you know. We saw this ad on TV where you could buy like foreclosure houses, and we spent so much money on on. Just a gimmick that stole the you know robbed us for our money. It was just crazy. Wow. Well,
0: when did you realize the whole operation had come undone or was about to come undone, and you were facing some very serious consequences?
1: It was uh, the day I got caught. The day I got caught, I I didn't. I didn't know it was going to be. I didn't know I was caught totally by surprise. Um, And so the way the way we got caught, I had uh, I had a dispatcher. And this dispatcher, uh, we had them set up. We, all our dispatchers we had on and, and condos with, you know, the cars, they had a prior, they had a salary and all they had to do was just answer the phone and just tell the people, you know, uh, where to go. And they had, uh, uh the packages that they handed over to the deliverers. And, and so this guy basically went behind our back and, and took a, a card and, um, and made a new phone number card. And so he gave it to new customers or trying to steal our customers. And um, and that card uh, ended up in one of my clients who had my personal number. So this this client of mine like hits me up and I used to hang out with this guy. He's like, yo, this guy gave me a, a card. Do you have a, it's a new number now? And, and the product is not the same. And I'm like, what What are you talking about? Because our product was like always grade A. We didn't cut anything. It was straight from like, you know, the ship to, to, to your, to your nose, you know? And, and that's, that's how we delivered it. Um, and so he was like, yeah, they, they're serving green bags now. And I'm like, that's not my bags. You know, like my bags are just clear. And I was like, uh, he told me like, I got a new car too. And a new number. I was like, yeah, let me get that number. So I, I grabbed the number from him and I called it and I heard the dispatcher that I employed answer that phone. And I was like, yo, what the fuck is he doing? And uh, he quickly hung up. And he had all the phones in his possession at the time. And so I, I went, I had a connection with, with T-Mobile. We had like prepaid phones. And, and I went and turned off all the phones and returned them on with new cell phones. And, um, and, and just did it that way. And, and, I, and that phone number that he had started was being tapped by federal agents. And I took that phone number and started operating with that number too because I thought it was like, you know, all the customers he stole from me. And so there's where the investigation started. Um, they had a year long investigation on me. They, they they had about 40 sales from all my drivers. Uh, they didn't even know that it was, you know, six other phones that we were operating with. Uh, and, and we had to get, so many phones because each phone only held 1500 to 2,500 contact numbers. So back then uh, you couldn't hold, you know, tens of thousands of contacts in in a phone like right now, you know, this has so much memory, but uh, that's, that's how we did it. You know, we had a whole bunch of phones and we just kept, kept pushing it. And, um, and we kept sending people. And I remember, you know, not trusting any more dispatchers. I, 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 started doing everything by myself and, and and that's how you know we got caught. Um, they had about forty sales, direct sales from all my drivers that night. I remember I went to the stash house um, to drop off some some weed in the stash house, and uh, I go upstairs, you know, and I'm and I'm getting a whole bunch of calls uh, from from clients, and so I'm I'm sending all my drivers and, and my drivers one at a time we getting picked up uh there was there was uh you know i don't know if you remember the next cell phone numbers with the walkie-talkie uh, but we were like sending them and and radio dispatching them through the next cell walkie-talkie so it was like Bree! you know but when it didn't go through it, it used to go beep beep and that meant like they were busy you know they were on the phone that kept doing that and it kept going off. So I kept sending other drivers to, you know, different places because we had a, a list of like fifty people waiting for us. And and it kept going. And and after like my ninth driver that night, I said, fuck that, I'm gonna go see I'm gonna go make these deliveries myself. I can't wait. And, you know, I have so many people waiting. I don't know what these guys are doing. And so I grab a whole bunch of packages. I I go downstairs. And as soon as I go downstairs, this uh, white, I'm in the middle of the Bronx, like straight, like black Hispanic neighborhood. You know, you don't don't see white people there, but I saw this big white guy and um, he was standing outside the house and he pulled out his badge and he said, this is federal agent, Joseph King, your whole operation is over. And I'm like, what the fuck is that? You call Smarte, right? And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. And I try to turn around and run, but they, they, they quickly just tackled me. And, and then they had a warrant and they went upstairs and, uh, they were like, where's all the stuff? Cause I had it stashed and they knew exactly where everything was. They, they went directly to the, the boxes where the, where the drugs were. And
0: if so I'd found people in your company who'd been able to you know inform about where all these things were, yeah one,
1: one, of, one of the drivers um, told, and he told him exactly you know where everything was, where everything was stashed at and, and, and it was crazy. Uh, I just knew that somebody told because they when they brought me upstairs and they were like, "Don't worry, we know everything. They went exactly. So I had about 500 pairs of Jordans on uh, sneakers and um, which, I, which I sold to start comp hotting. Uh so they, they uh, went exactly to the pair of sneakers where the, all the drugs was at in that box and they opened it up and it was, it was over. Wow. So you're
0: arrested, you're initially faced with a life sentence because of the three strikes law that imposes the mandatory life sentence if you had two prior convictions. You ended up with a seven-year sentence with a, I think it was a non-parole period of five years. What was it like in court when you're wait, just sitting there waiting to see how much of your life is going to be taken from you?
1: It's nerve-wracking. That's, I think that's one of the most nerve-wracking situations that you, you, yeah, I had to face in my life. You know, um, other people could be nervous about other stuff. I mean, I've been in shootouts. I've, I've seen, I've seen people pass away in front of me, like. But you know, to see a judge and you're in cuffs and having them decide you know the future of your life, you know, it's like it's like they, they could kill you right there, you know. But once you once you're away, you're not alive, you know, and that's how I felt. Sure,
0: so you you you're off to prison at that point. It wasn't the first time you'd been to prison, but it was the largest sentence. How was your first night on the inside, knowing that it was going to be a long time before you'd be able to see your son again?
1: It was sad. I, I think that's what hurt me the most uh, because I remember that that day I got arrested, um, I spent the whole pretty much the whole day with him. Uh, and, and my wife had well, she was my fiance at the time and we got married and when I went inside prison, um, but divorced when we got out and, um, but yeah, I mean, it was, it was, it was hard, you know, if anybody has kids, you know, you feel it in your heart, you know, it's like, uh, and then also speaking to him over the phone was just, um, like I I told him his ABCs, you know, over the phone, you know, like over a prison phone, you know, so it's. And he would always come to visit me and, and say, like, you know, when you're coming home, and, and, I, and that broke my heart, you know, um, when he would cry, and, and I would tell him I can't go home, you know. Yeah, a big part of that.
0: He probably doesn't understand why his dad's not not there uh, not there with him. What about in prison? What's an average day like in, in prison?
1: I mean, you, you try to forget about the, the real world. Um, you, you're living... In a different planet, in there, There's just a uh, different set of rules. You have it, it, there's a lot of racism going going in, on in in the in the states, and so b- there's black gangs. Uh, you know, there's there's Bloods, there's Crips, there's Latin Kings. There's you know, there's just all types of gangs um, running stuff, and and sometimes you go you end up in a in a housing unit that's full of you know, mostly Bloods, and then sometimes you're in a Crip House. Sometimes you're in a more Lion King house. So you just got to re- be ready to adapt. Um, and I know how to adapt, you know, because I was a kid when I went in. And and I remember when I was a kid, I had to fight every single day because I was not part of a gang. And the adult side of things were a little bit more uh, lenient in terms of you not being in a gang but that meant you couldn't use the certain phones, you know. So you have three payphones. You only could, you know, there's a there's a neutral phone, there's a Spanish phone, and then there's a you know black gang phone. And um, you know, I was I was part of the Spanish. You know, I was not in a gang, but I was always hanging out with the Spanish gangs, and and I was and I was okay to use the Spanish phones, you know. And sometimes other gang members would take away that neutral phone, you know, if you. If you were not part of the, the unit, you know, it was, you couldn't make a phone call. Uh, I think people get extorted for food, you know. Um, it's it's just uh, crazy fights over TV, like a lot of fights over the TV, you know, whether uh, somebody's watching the Spanish channel and somebody wants to watch, you know, regular news and, and somebody will just go up to the TV and change it. You have to you have to be ready to fight you know um, they, they, they say pull out your gun which you don't have a gun but you they call the knives your knife is your gun and that's what you say in prison
0: wow that's crazy was it was it more violent inside or was it more violent on the streets
1: uh definitely inside definitely more more violent inside uh, in the streets you could be incognito especially, you know, after things changed with cell phones and delivery services, you know, it was not that corner-to-corner type of issue from back in the day. Um, inside uh, was just a, a bit more crazy. Mm. And what about working? Were you able to earn
0: any money while you were on the, on the inside with any – because there's a lot of corporations that actually, um, you know, have almost slave labor wages, don't they, with, with some um, incarcerated people
1: in the U.S.? Yeah, so I was working as a customer service agent for the Department of Motor Vehicles, earning seven cents an hour. Seven cents an hour. That's an hour. So I was. At my monthly wage was forty, uh, about forty dollars.
0: Wow, that's crazy. How do they justify seven cents an hour?
1: I have no idea. It's all. It's all. It's all a robbery. It's all. You know. It's a money-making business. You know. The, these. Uh, you have the department pay the prison a certain amount. Um, that department it pays the inmates, and uh, and they take a cut, you know. So they could they could say like, "Hey, well, will you know, deliver all the customer agents for you, you know, for ten dollars an hour rather than twenty dollars an hour." Uh, and and then they you get paid whatever they tell you. That you're gonna get paid, and you want to do something while you're inside. Um, you have to do something just so keep occupied uh, and if you don't work, you know, you, you get in trouble too. There's so many ways you sort
0: of cease being human, don't you, when you when you enter the prison system. Absolutely crazy. Yeah, it's,
1: it's part of the law. If you don't, if basically if you're incarcerated, you're subject to being a slave.
0: Wow. Well, five years in, you're only a couple of months away from being released but an assault from a guard lands you in solitary and stacks more time on your sentence. How did that happen and how did you keep the faith?
1: I, I was devastated when I ended up in solitary confinement. I had two months left towards my release. And I remember uh, you know, when the, when the officers beat me up and threw me in, in solitary confinement in 24 hour lockdown, I felt, I felt devastated, uh, I felt hopeless. Um, I, I thought I couldn't get out of the situation until uh, this officer came to my, my door and, and opened up the food slot where we, you know, they gave us the food and, and passes me a paper pen and an envelope and I quickly grabbed that, you know, so I could communicate with my family. So I, I thought I was gonna, I wrote a letter and I thought I was gonna let them know about, you know, the whole situation and how this officer set me up and beat me up. And um, and I enclosed this letter and then I realized I had no stamp to send out this letter with. And and I became more restless, uh, I, I sat on my bed and started banging my head on the wall, uh, just frustrated and, and, you know, just hopeless. And uh, and it was not until maybe three or four days uh, where my sister, you know, finds out I was in solitary and, I, and she tells me, uh, she writes me a letter and tells me, we found out you're in solitary, everything's going to be all right. Um, all I want you to do is pray. And my sister is like super religious and she told me to pray Psalm 91. And I was like, fuck that. I don't, I don't need God. I don't need religion. I need a lawyer. I need to fight this case. This guy's trying to set me up. And, um, it was not until a couple of days where I decided to pick up the Bible, which was the only thing in the cell. The only thing that follows you around through your whole prison sentence uh, and it was this Bible that she gave me on early in my incarceration in Rikers Island, um, and I, I turned to Psalm ninety-one, which uh, states, "He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty." I will say, to "The Lord, He is my shelter, my fortress, my God, in whom I trust." And as soon as I read those words, there was a, a stamp that fell a lot of the psalm pages, and and that gave me chills. You know, that gave me. I was, I was, I don't know, I was struck by like awe and, and I, I kept reading and something weird happened to me. I was like in a hundred and something degree weather, like super hot. cell you know, frustrated, but every time I read the Bible, I felt like that I was in a whole 70 degree weather and sitting in the Caribbean, you know, like I escaped that cell you know, for that moment, every time I began reading and started getting lost in those words, and I read the Bible from front to back. And I'm not a person that's super religious, or you know, I'm not trying to convert anyone. Um, but this is what happened to me. And I, I read the Bible from front to back, and it and I started realizing what I was doing was wrong. You know, I felt like drugs were okay to sell. I felt like you know I was not doing anything wrong. The system was wrong. You know, I was I was. I, I thought I was the victim in, in every situation. And, um, and then I started realizing that I was affecting not only like, the thousands of people that I sold drugs to, but I started you know, thinking about their families. You know, I started thinking about my family. You know, I started thinking about this web of destruction that I created. And I, I, want, I felt so much regret and I said, I want to give back in some sort of way. And and so I, I came up with that idea of combody in that cell um, after losing seventy pounds in six months and, and helping over twenty inmates who's over a thousand pounds combined. So I started this whole workout program in the prison yard. And I said, This is what I want to come home to do. I want to start a prison style boot camp. And in that cell, I wrote a a little mini business plan, wrote out my whole 90-day workout plan. and uh, and utilize that time and i remember enclosing that 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 huge those pieces of paper and envelope and 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 i and i said i was going to do what i wrote and i did what i wrote you know i i came home about a year later behind that situation and i did it i went from to the park you know training classes in the park to renting out studios to then eventually opening up my first studio and then a gym and then it's just, you know, started escalating to, you know, building an online workout platform, uh, which I virtually train out thousands of people. We, we've trained over 50,000 people today uh, from all around the world. Um, and, we, and the most beautiful thing is that we've hired over 40 people coming out of the prison system and none of them have come back into the system.
0: Wow, that's incredible. And the statistic, isn't it, is that 53% of people in New York are likely to be back inside prison within within and three that,
1: years. Yeah. And that's just New York. Um, it, it, within five years, they go, is 76%. Within eight years, they came out with a new study, 82% of the people will go back into the system. Um, so four out of, I mean, three out of four people will go back. And I'm a proven statistic, you know, I, I, I recidivate it, you know, and, and a lot has to do with the lack of opportunities that you, you receive when you come home out of the system.
0: So how did you initially spread the word about ConBody? You're inside, you've got this amazing idea for a business, but it's only when it's really started that you learn just how good the, the business is. How were you able to, to spread the word and were there any uh, principles or lessons you had from your former life that were able to help you build this business?
1: Yeah, I remember when I was in uh, when I got out of solitary confinement, I had to do this like group class. It was like part of this like drug that they call it ASAT, Alcohol Substance Abuse Treatment Program, and um, and you had to do a couple months of that. So I I remember in the middle of the class, you know, it's a whole bunch of inmates, and and they they tell us like what's your plan when you come home. So I I remember getting up in front of the class and telling the whole, and all, all the inmates there. And I was like, look, I'm going to start a prison staff boot camp. I'm going to hire people coming out of the system, blah, blah, blah. And I told them the whole idea of combody. And people were just laughing and chuckling and they thought it was crazy. You know, and I was like, I got, I got mad. I was like, this shit's going to fucking pop off you know, Like, I know that I know how to build the business from, from the ground up, you know, and, and that was just my mentality that nothing was going to stop me. And I was determined to make this thing happen. And I came home and I used the same marketing skills, same hustling tactics that I used when I was selling drugs. I was going up to random people, giving them my business card. You know, anybody that was, you know, any females wearing yoga pants who were jogging down the block I'm chasing after them and just, you know, pitching them left and right. And that's, and that became my, my whole thing. You know, I just kept doing it. And, uh, and from there it started escalating.
0: So did you, did you find people who are currently incarcerated and you trained them as personal trainers? Or is it once they were released, you were able to train them as personal trainers and bring them into ConBody?
1: Yeah, once they were released. Um, so I started everything by myself. I was teaching all the classes. I was running the whole business. Uh, I couldn't afford to pay anyone at that, you know, in the beginning stages. It took me uh, a little bit over a year and a half before I, I hired my first guy. Uh, and then, and, and then I remember one of the guys that I was locked up with that saw me lose a lot of weight and, uh, he can he contacted me the first day he come came home and he, he read about me in an article and saw it and became my Facebook friend. And he hits me up on Facebook and he's like, Hey, yo, uh, you know, can I, can I be a trainer there? And, um, and I put him on board and then it just kept spreading like that.
0: I love it. That's so good. And this year as well, you started a crowdfunding campaign for Second Chance Studios, which has raised more than $60,000. What's your aim with Second Chance Studios and why is it such an important project for you?
1: Yeah, I feel like uh, one of the biggest issues when people coming out of the prison system is that we have a lot of manual labour jobs um, and that's pretty much that the only thing that one could land when they come out. Um, there's just so many statistics of people, you know, not landing jobs. One out of the, one out of five people that are unemployed in America are formerly incarcerated people, which is, is crazy. Um, that's millions and millions of people with criminal histories. And that co- correlates to people going back. And, and especially during COVID time, like anybody that had a manual labor job pretty much lost their job and couldn't go back. And so now, you know, with, uh, the technical s- skill side of it, we want to launch. We launched Second Chance Studios, which will hire and train people to do podcasting work, video production, audio engineer. Uh, and so, what we want to do is, we want to have corporations hire these individuals once they go through our program and solidify their training. I also want to hire people from a combody point of view uh, to do a, our video recording and our audio stuff on on the combody side as well.
0: Yeah, it's awesome. It's perfect timing as well with the pandemic and the push to remote work to being able to have these people that they can do it from. They can work for people all around the world from the, from the comfort of their own homes. That's, that's awesome. You've been a TEDx speaker. You've been a, an author as well. You've done all these amazing things. When, when were you released? How, how long ago was it since you've been able to, to do all these awesome ventures? Uh, it's been a while. Uh,
1: March 2013 already. Nice,
0: yeah, you've done you've done really well, and and you know I have the utmost respect for the journey that you have been on. Obviously, a very very difficult upbringing, but it's the bigger the setback, the bigger the comeback. What about on the if you had one change to make to the the prison system? It sounds like there's a lot of work that needs to be done, uh, particularly over here in America. What's one change that you, that you think needs to be uh, made? To, because Helping formerly incarcerated individuals develop skills, earn money. These are the the changes that need to be made, rather than being afraid of this group of people. If we're to have a you know a, a meaningful society,
1: I think we we need to believe in redemption, and, and I feel like everyone in this planet has committed some type of mistake, some something immoral or something bad. You know, not everyone's perfect, and we need to realize. That we we will all commit mistakes. You know, if we didn't commit mistakes, we wouldn't learn from our mistakes. And I feel like our system here is all about punishment. And and from all around the world, you know, you could you could say like, you know, once you go into the jail or prison system, it's it's some sort of punishment, and it's not. And they call it correctional facility. I feel like we need to correct the problem. And I think by how we do that is, is we get people that care instead of bringing correctional officers that just want to hit you with batons and beat you up and, and, and turn, in, turn you more into a criminal and, and wanting to fight the system. Why not have trained correctional officers, trained staff members that really care and want to correct the problem, train individuals, you know, reform people and, and believe in these second chances?
0: Yeah, well, hopefully a lot of awareness that can be created by you know there's documentaries now on Netflix and stories like your own. Hopefully this can help inspire some of that change. All running. We have a Let's quickly do the win the day rocket round, which is ten questions for some for some fairly quick answers. If you're if you're ready for this, uh, number one, what quote inspires you the most?
1: Uh, so, I think the quote that inspires me the most—I I, I, I always write it down, but I forget. Um, sorry, this is not quick.
0: You're right. But I was trying to think of a quote the other day. Was it? A, yeah, a Podfest, where I was like, "This is this one. It's one of my favorite quotes," and I completely forgot what it was as I was trying to talk about how powerful and how memorable this quote was. So, you, you take as much time as you as you um, need. I, I know how hard it is when someone puts you on the spot, and it's like, "Damn it!" It's somewhere in my mind.
1: Yeah, no, Winston Churchill's definition of success, moving on from failure to failure with no loss of enthusiasm. Absolutely,
0: one of my favorite
1: quotes too, fantastic.
0: Uh, Question two, morning coffee or evening wine? Uh, Both. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Number three, what's one bit of advice you would give to your 18-year-old
1: self? I would would just want to, there's more than just uh, the box that you live in. Start. start looking out around you, you know, start exploring other parts of the city, start exploring other parts of the country. You know, there's, there's different, uh, you know, think outside the box more.
0: Number four, what book do you gift the most or what's your favorite book?
1: Uh, Calm Body. Yeah. <laughs> nice, I love it, good promo.
0: <laughs> Was there a vulnerability you once hid within that became your superpower? This is a question that a lot of people normally need to, need to think about? Was there a vulnerability you
1: once hid within that became your superpower? Um, I think being true to myself, uh, you know, like, I don't know, like, you know, just not being, not lying, you know, not being afraid to to tell the truth and just pass on that, you know, in, in terms of you know, I, I sometimes lied on a job application that I was not a dad have a criminal history, and and then um, you know, and and then they would kick me out uh, from that job interview once they found out that I, I lied on that application, and so um, you know, just being honest with oneself and not being afraid of, of what happens when when you be honest. Yeah, it's a big part of that trajectory that you're on, isn't it? Having that ownership over
0: the situation that you're in and the past that you've had, and that's how you've been able to to really embrace the situation you're in, to help change, as you said, more than 50,000 lives around the world now, which is, uh, which is awesome. What's one thing you've learned about failure?
1: Um, you know, we, we have to fail. We have to fail to succeed. Uh, you know, it's just all learning tools and step-by-step and step we'll, we'll continue to fail, but that's how we figure out not to fail.
0: Number seven, if you could sit on a park bench and have a conversation with someone, alive or dead, who would it be?
1: Uh, oh, I think my fiance. I, I, I love talking to her and just hanging out and we could sit anywhere and talk. <laughs> nice. I don't think my wife would say her husband if I asked <laughs> <answered>
0: her that question. <laughs> Number eight, what tool or resource best helps you run your life or business?
1: Um, tool or resource? I don't know. I, I guess Google Suite, you know, just like Google Calendar, Google Sheets, Google spreadsheets. You know, yeah,
0: collaboration in, in wow. real time with a bunch of different people. Yeah, it makes a makes a massive difference, doesn't it? Number nine, share one thing on your bucket list. Now I know you've already been to Australia, so that can't be on the on the list. Is there something <laughs> else that you've that you still want to tick off?
1: Um, I mean, I want to go a lot of places that I haven't been to. Um, I don't know. I, I jumped out of a plane in Australia, so that was yeah, check that one off. Nice. Uh, I wanna I wanna jump off a cliff and do one of those like, you know, those uh you know how people like look like flying squirrels. Yeah. I wanna mess around and do that.
0: Nice. I've actually got a good friend who I'll connect you with next time you do go to Australia who'd love to take you on that. He also does meditation um in free fall to try and keep his, his heart rate down. He did uh, once he realized he had a fear of heights, he did two hundred um, skydives in, in wow. one year. He's an incredible guy. You should actually get on his, uh, his podcast show too. I'll, I'll connect you yeah, guys absolutely.
1: after this. And
0: final question, mate What's one thing you do to win the day?
1: I think uh, working out is the biggest thing. Um, you know, I feel so accomplished when I like wake up in the morning, you know, get ready and just go out there and just do a run or just work out. And then I feel like I accomplished that. I hope you enjoyed that
0: interview with Koss. It's a wonderful example of what you can accomplish when you take ownership of your life and dare to dream big. During the pandemic especially, I know a lot of you are struggling with the isolation and feelings of despair. So much so that it's easy to feel like we're in prison or house arrest, but hopefully you can use Koss's story for some inspiration. If you enjoyed this episode, hit the subscribe button. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. Win the Day with James Whitaker is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and wherever you listen to podcasts. We've got some big episodes coming up that I know you're going to love. That's all for this episode. Remember to get out there and win the day. Until next time, onwards and upwards, always.